This is a potluck episode. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance sports training. Sports performance. Oh my God, <laughs> get it right. I just want to point out, Rob is not an afternoon person. We always record in the morning and we made Rob do a Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon. And I noticed as I was getting this set up, Rob was staring intensely at absolutely <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Well, when we do our sound checks, Rob always talks about his coffee and his latte, right? And his yes. sound check was, I haven't had a latte in five hours. <laughs> you know, if you're that much of an addict, either succumb to the addiction and bust out a latte at one in the afternoon or stop drinking the drug, dude. Do you know, you know what's really funny? I talk about coffee a lot because I actually like coffee. Not that I'm addicted or it does anything. It doesn't. It doesn't, Grant. You roll your eyes. I was in North Carolina at the beach. I, I was that way too. That's for a fun. week, didn't have a single thing of coffee the whole time. Well, I haven't had coffee. because you were lying right. on the beach. You just wanted to be out cold. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't had coffee other than a race day in three years or something now. And, and yeah, I, I didn't have any withdrawals. Hey, hey, never had a cup of coffee. Yeah. In my God, life. you drink tea like it's water. You don't care. It is either. water. That's the point. You're Canadian. <laughs> it's they water with Hortons. a little bit of something in it. You're, That's what coffee is. Which is, let me give you my biggest gripe. You guys probably have coffee gripes. I hate when you go to like a Starbucks and you order a tea. It's tea. Nobody cares. They're, they're like, <laughs> most popular drink in the world. I'm going to point this out. Oh, that's because the British are monarchists and they're <laughs> colonialists. No, it's the Chinese. There's oh. a lot of people in China. But here's my point. Starbucks, you order a tea. They ask you what size and they're different prices even though every single time it's a tea bag with water, you're paying for extra water. It drives me nuts. That'll serve you right. Go get a little one and deal with it. Okay. Hey, Rob, what's your question? I don't know, but Trevor is angry right now. Okay. I'm sorry. Tis the season for knee pain. As the summer sunshine inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Labs members can follow our knee health pathway, featuring our director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. We typically start here with Grant. We're going to start with Rob. So, Rob, you want to get this going? What's the deal with Matthew Vanderpool? What about it? You believe this guy? He's pretty good. He is but he's not all at the same time. How can like one of the greatest cyclists in the history of cycling not finish a lap of a mountain bike race? He fell down. Again, he fell down again. Did he it in the Olympics? Over. Did it in Worlds? I want to know, using Vanderpool as an example, and Grant, I know your opinion. Today, we see a lot of athletes who are engaged in multiple disciplines, right? We've seen it with EF education. Alex is racing mountain bikes. He's racing road bikes. Grant, you have riders that are racing road, gravel, mountain. It seems like it's a common thing for people to do today, more common than it used to be. How do people find success across multiple disciplines and not be a one-trick pony and not try to do an event that they ought to be able to win or place in and fall on their face literally 30 seconds into the race. Why is everybody looking at me? I, <laughs> I have 
very, very strong opinions about this. And That's I don't think why we're looking at. I don't think they're necessarily what you think. I think that that broad spectrum of disciplines is essential to a well-rounded cyclist mm-hmm. growing up. I think it's incredibly important that you watch athletes come from the track background or from the cyclocross background, and they just have something that other people don't necessarily have. And we, it, it could be cadence. It could be top end power. It could be a lot of things. It's just really, really cool when you see it. But without a doubt, it is really, really hard to move from one discipline to another and nail it right on the fly. Vanderpool hadn't touched his mountain bike all year, and he fell on his face in the and first 30 seconds. Pidcock has been racing his mountain bike intermittently. Did it show in his spring campaign? Maybe. He wasn't on the top box a whole lot, but he's on the top box at Worlds. So, you know, it it's hard because we watch these guys like Vanderpool and Van Art come to the table and we're like, they're so amazing. They could do everything, but they can't unless they put a little bit of time into it. And they say it themselves. Vanderpool, a couple of years ago, when he came to the cross season out of road, everybody's like, here we go. Dude, he was terrible for him in the first two to three races. And then it clicked. Can he still win them? Yeah, because he's ridiculously good. But he was falling down. He was doing this and doing that. I have my own opinions on worlds and kind of what happened. But in the general conversation of like, can you do it all? Yeah, but you got to focus on something. You still have to have a discipline that takes a level priority. Okay, we can move on. Apparently apparently so. (laughs) That was good. I'm, I'm going to throw something out. Look, I don't have an answer for this one. Rob sent this late last night intentionally to make sure I couldn't prepare for it. So I'm on the fly here. I'm on the fly, Trevor. That's the whole purpose of this question. On the fly. I, I know it's Close on the your fly. computer. Transition. Yeah. Why is your computer open? Because I'm the one who sees the questions. Otherwise, nobody knows what the questions are. That's true. We do forget our own questions. You do forget <laughs> your own questions. I'm calling you out on that. <laughs> but that's all I've got open here. So look, as you know, Pro teams, they keep the training plans pretty close to heart. So I'm guessing a little bit here. I have not seen Vanderpool's plan. I don't. I haven't seen his training plan. But the general trend that I have seen is in the old days, and I'm just talking about the racers who are winning, the big names. Very different approach if you're a domestique who's just riding for, for your teammates. Domestiques are going to just kind of be 85% all year round and do a whole ton of racing. But in the old days, if you were one of the big names, you might pick two, three targets all year and go for their So, so there wasn't a lot of room to say, well, one target's going to be mountain biking. One target's yeah. going to be the tour de France. The other target's going to be whatever. You really had just one discipline and you, you picked it. You've seen more and more of this shift towards a block periodization approach where you have seven, eight peaks potentially through the season. And I do wonder if doing that has allowed some of these athletes to think, well, you know, I used to be a cross rider. I used to do mountain bike and I do road I have all these points when I peak, so let's do some mountain bike races. Let's do some cross races. Let's do some road races. I don't have to pick as much, but I agree with you completely. There's skills that you have to keep up and might cause you to crash in the first lap of the world. I mean, how do you keep those skills up? Is it a dedicated block of time? I'm on my road bike for this month, and then I'm switching to my mountain bike exclusively, or is it Tuesday is for mountain bike skills, Wednesday is for road intervals, so on and so I forth? Think it, I think it's hard to do it that way for a long term because they're so different. How you turn a mountain bike is so different than how you turn a road bike. And I've always kind of complained about this, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I see the huge benefit of being on your mountain bike for cyclocross. It takes away the fear of speed. 
But everybody's like, get on your mountain bike, get on your mountain bike, get on your mountain bike, get ready for cross. I'm like, why? You're on a road frame. You need to learn how to turn a road frame quickly on dirt. These skills don't necessarily translate. I remember this from years ago watching Blevins when he won in Reno and he was racing one of my athletes, Eric. They were neck and neck all the way through it. And Mm -hmm. what kept coming up to me was Chris was having trouble on the really crossy sections of the course. The stuff that you don't do on a mountain bike all the time. The really off-camber weird crap that on and off the bike. But his power was out of this he world, was right? flying, and his individual skills of hopping three stairs at a time were out of this world, and that's what won him the race. But Eric almost came back when it got really crossy yeah. at the end. So you have to put dedicated time in on a bike in order to be in that place for that discipline. I don't think you can mix it up constantly. You almost have to shift gears back and forth. I'm going to go do a mountain bike camp. I'm going to go do this, and that's what makes it so hard to keep all of that up. Look, I'll tell you from experience. I get together once a year with some friends to do a mountain bike trip, and I'm not much of a mountain biker. So about six weeks before that trip, I'll start getting on the mountain bike. I'll ride it seven, eight times, and my skills improve like twofold yeah. in that time. And then I can sort of hang on with my friends, and then I don't touch my mountain bike again for four months. And yeah. I, just four months, if I get back on the mountain bike, I've lost everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm back to zero. They work different. Yeah. I mean, the bikes are just so different and that, and, the, and, and they're becoming more so over time, especially with the tire size and some of those other things yep. that come into play, getting on a gravel bike with a 44 front or a 40 front tire. That's knobby and da, 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 da. It's nothing like a road bike. It doesn't work the same way. No. I'll even take it beyond the skills. There is a perspective. I say this to my friends when I'm on the, the route, like they'll go down this hill that they won't think at all about. Cause it's really steep and got rocks on it. And I just get to the top and go, no way. <laughs> and, and, and they go, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I've got road eyes. Come on, yeah. Trevor, when in doubt, air it out. If you tried to ride that on a road bike, you're dead. Yeah, there is something to be said for that. Now, I do want to shift this back in a slightly different conversation. I think to come back to your point of how the old periodization worked and how the old training model worked, one of the things I want to throw out at this too, though, is that the training models have changed. We used to have this period where people were doing five months of base, only base. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm only going to do base. So they had to build up to, then I can get the intensity. Then I can do this. Mm -hmm. Now I can rest. Here's my race. We're watching guys like Vanderpool and Van Art using cyclocross as off-season training. That ain't base, man. Like So these guys... And a lot of athletes, and I know that my athletes, we would do intensity year-round. We're doing intensity not very long after a break because I don't think you lose all your base in two weeks. Even if I put them on the couch for two weeks, they lose fitness? Sure, they lose fitness. We know they lose fitness, but they don't lose all of their base. So we can play in all these zones. I think as you see athletes now that play in all the zones all year-round, they can race at a high level a lot of the season. I definitely think that's a benefit. You know, I think that when it comes to skills, because that was the original intention of my question, but the training that you're talking about, no, I do think that that's super valid. We just, we talk about training all the time. Let's talk about skills. Skills. I think that for people that want to be effective in a discipline that's outside of what they normally do, whether it's oftentimes probably cyclocross or mountain bike, right? I think that 
probably a lot of people spend a lot of time on the road and, and skill-wise, that has its own set of pack dynamics and, and bike handling in a group, so on and so forth. But I do think that for some of more of these off-road adventures, maybe you're coming into Leadville 100, people need to be spending time both on representative course conditions at race speed. And you might not be able to do race speed for all of the laps the entire time, but you need to be riding at least short sections at race speed because it's very different in zone two or zone five when you're like breathing out your eyeballs. Yeah. But then I also believe that people ought to be spending some time riding things that are more technical than they might actually see in the race. So that when you're in the race, you're 100% confident because you're going to be on the edge. So you can't be at your limit in the race because if you're on your limit and 100% physical effort, it's not a good formula. Well, and I do think this is relevant to training, right? Because, you know, so often we have to make sure that we're training in conditions that are similar to how we're going to race. This is what you're talking about. So when we take the cross guys out and we're doing a group workout, we're doing it on a grass or dirt and we're doing it on a course. I'm creating things that allow them to do the workout on that. Yep. And that, so that changes every week. If we're doing 45, 30, 15, we're doing one thing at Robson's farm. And then another week, if we're doing something else, it's a totally different piece the more we can take that mentality to the road bike, to the gravel bike, to the mountain bike, the more those skills are going to be really peaked for when we go race. And it's a speed that you're just not used to. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest things. I mean, I know for years, my issue was every time I took a level up on the cyclocross bike, I hit features at a different speed mm -hmm. and then I freaked out. Yep. Like I would, I would ride in course from year to year and go like, I totally got this course. You go to the course the next year. I'm like, I can't handle this course, but I'm going that little bit much faster. Yeah. If you look at Vanderpool's crash, I do think it was just a lack of bike time, right? Yeah. It was a simple sweeping, moderate sweeping right-hand corner, slightly downhill, a little bit, maybe a little bit off camera, a little bit dusty, ultimately a low traction situation. I'm sure he was running very low profile tires. And ultimately, I think that he just wasn't really paying that much attention. You can see he's kind of looking through the corner. Mm -hmm. He's really not thinking or trying that hard. But anyone who's ridden that knows that's slippery. You got to pay attention there. You got to wait the front tire, right? And I bet had he spent more time recently on conditions like that, whether it's the race course, that you you have those bobbles at race speed and practice, and then you know. But when you just pre-ride the course at slow speeds, you're like, oh, this is nothing. I don't even have to think about this corner. I'm thinking about the technical section coming up in 10 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And I and, and it really possible he might have waited that front wheel like it was a road bike. Yeah. Yep. Dude, he's been on it so darn long. And he was just got off it. And like you said before, it doesn't matter how many times we pre-ride a course. We're not pre-riding a course at the same speed we're racing. No. Yep. Look, that's what I was going to bring up. That goes back again to the, how are you viewing this? What perspective are you looking at from? And when I do that six weeks of mountain bike training, I'm not sure that it's so much my skills get better. It's just, I get more comfortable on a mountain bike. And yeah, you're right. When you go around a corner on a road bike, you don't expect to the rear wheel to slide at all. If it does, you're in real big trouble. Right. And little side note to his crash in road worlds. He tried to save that like he was on a cyclocross bike. <laughs> He put the foot down and tried to dab himself <laughs> through the rut, and it didn't quite work. No. Nope. But it was just amazing to watch him get that foot out and on the ground that fast. 
because most people can't do it. Road shoes and cleats pedals. Nuts. Yeah. Like he looked like he was going to slam it into a rut and stay upright. <laughs> and he's was, done it a thousand oh, times. It was so cool. And then you're like, oh, he's on the ground. Yeah. Well, if maybe there were a little more curbing. A little, like, some, oh, a little, yeah, yeah not, not the same. <laughs> Physics. The best save ever. And this is what, 1999? Zobble. Oh, yeah. In the middle of a Tour de France sprint, yep. full speed, unclips from both pedals. Doesn't go down, doesn't take anybody down. Yeah. Mariana Voss sprinting for a finish, hit a pothole, ended up on the top tube, like draped over the handlebars. Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah. These guys, they're nuts. But it is very sports specific, right? And I think, I think you even see that a little bit. That's my whole point. You see that in Vanderpool a little bit. He tried to do a cyclocross save on a road bike. Nothing would have saved it. His front wheel was gone. Like he was going down, but it was just wild to watch the cyclocross instinct kick in. And like, ah, I can, I can put my foot down. I'm good. Yep. Uh, that note. And then we'll, we'll move on. If you are going down, there is a certain point where trying to save it is just going to get hurt you more. Oh, dude, if that leg could have gone the wrong direction, it would have yeah. been real bad, which happens. So if you know, you're going down, just focus on how can I hit the ground the lightest? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, listeners, this is Trevor Connor, co-host of Fast Talk and CEO of Fast Talk Laboratories. For years, we've been sharing our training, coaching, knowledge, and experience through the Fast Talk podcast. We've been able to connect you with some amazing experts in the endurance sports space like Dr. Steven Seiler, Joe Friel, Dr. Stacey Sims, and Dr. Inugo Sahamalan. Help us keep bringing you world-class experts by supporting us through Patreon. Just log on to patreon.com and search for Fast Talk Podcast. Thanks for your support. And of course, thank you for listening. Okay, so I've got a question for you. This one's probably going to be pretty quick. And look, we're going to make a couple assumptions with my question. We have done episodes on FTP and how valuable FTP is. So if you're interested in that conversation, go back <laughs> and listen to those episodes. So for this one, Let's just make the assumption that FTP is a valuable number, and FTP is defined as the power that you can hold for one hour. Okay. Problem is, most people do not want to go out and hurt themselves for an hour, so they're always looking for better ways to figure out what their FTP is. And I love it when Dr. Seiler's on the show, and he's like, suck it up and do an hour. One very common method from Hunter Allen is the 20-minute multiply it by 95%. But one that I think, I don't know if Neil came up with this, but Neil Henderson loves this and he might very well have come up with this, is he found when you look at somebody's 60-minute normalized power during a hard effort or a race or intervals, that actually seems to correlate really well with FTP. So that is my question. How much can we trust that? And the reason I'm bringing this up, I had an athlete last week go out and do sprint intervals and he did a real hard set of sprints, but this is 20 second sprints with two minute recoveries where he's not pedaling. And he hit his best 60 minute normalized power ever. And can I really use that number to say that's what you could hold at threshold for an hour? Welcome to Fast Talk, where we solve Trevor's problems. <laughs> <laughs> and my athletes pay me. They don't know about this. So uh, I'm going to tell you guys a story. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <clears throat> Here we go. Are you guys familiar with the YSI 2300 lactate analyzer? <laughs> Why, yes, Rob, I am. Well, let me tell you, for those who are listening and aren't familiar... 
This thing is a tank. <laughs> it's it's bench top. It's filled with liquids. It is a medical grade lactate analyzer. And it's exactly what we had at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. And I, the reason I know it is Dr. Samalan was like, this is the only lactate monitor in the world. <laughs> you you use yeah. anything else, it doesn't count. So funny story. One time, Neil and I went to a team camp in California and I put a YSI 2300 into my carry-on on the plane. This was back in the day. It was easier to get stuff through security, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and I bring it does this, kind of look like a bomb. This is, it does, yeah, I know. And there's blood all e over explain it. Explain that one. <laughs> I bring this story up for this reason. Uh, Neil and I were at a team camp. Evie Stevens was on the team. It was the Lululemon specialized camp. Lululemon camp. Thank you, Grant. And we did lactate testing on all of the athletes. And then we did field testing on all of the athletes. And so I'm answering for Neil here real quick because I've spent a lot of time with Neil. When Neil says your 60-minute normalized power, I believe he is referring specifically to protocol that he implements with athletes. That is a combination in very specific series of a five-minute effort, a 20-minute effort, a 30-second effort, and a five-second effort. One-minute one minute effort, yeah, two right. five-second efforts. Yeah. And that he has seen that, yes, very much FTP is very similar in that fashion. So what I'll say as the beginning of this answer is, if in an appropriate condition and with appropriate work, then I do believe that that can be a great analog. But I don't believe that we can apply this to any 60-minute block that's out there. Before you go, can yeah. I say I'm really disappointed with that answer? <laughs> the reason I'm really disappointed is because you did this great buildup with this lactate analyzer. Yeah. And then your delivery at the end didn't need the lactate analyzer at all. So what what is the relevance of this lactate analyzer? They used it at the camp, dude. Weren't you paying yeah, attention? Bro. But you can do this whole protocol without lactate at all. Well, I know, but that's what we were correlating both laboratory and field-based measures. And we were, I and I took like a $15,000 lab-grade thing in my carry-on, Trevor. You just wanted to tell people you took that in your carry-on, Well, you? it was fun. I have another funny flying story, but that's for later. Okay, take a step back. I do like to take some numbers from race efforts where we know we're kind of doing this, right? We're slightly over, slightly under, slightly over, slightly under, and... I do think there's things that you can do in a race setting that you're not going to do in an hour of power. My problem with the hour of power is not even the convenience of it. It's just I know <laughs> how few people are going to be in the right headspace to be able to do that well. Yep. And how much of a gap we're going to get because they're not. And then you're giving them a number and going, hey, congratulations, 270. And they're sitting there like, Dude, I do 320 all the time in a race setting. Mm -hmm. So to be that blunt with it, right, and go, well, that counts and that doesn't. I'm not a big believer in that. I will take a lot of people's threshold numbers from races or really good workouts. But one thing that we do need, I think we need to throw out there about Neil's protocol is the reason he has that five-minute power thing sitting before the 20 is it takes the edge off. Exactly. If you have me go up Flagstaff for a standalone 20-minute effort, I will stand and I will muscle that thing. Yep. And that will not be an appropriate number because it's going to be too high. 
Well, and I will say for me, if I ever do a standalone 20 minute, it's I take uh, 92%, not 95% of that number because of the anaerobic ability that I have. Yeah. It, my 20 minute power is obviously going to be a bit higher than my 30 minute or my 60 minute ought right. to be. I love the two sprinters in room because when I do this protocol, for me, it's just a 25 minute time trial with a, <laughs> with a break in the middle. <laughs> Right, right. The two of us are knocking out like, you know, 20%, 30% higher on the five minute. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor's like, well, I got 3% higher this time. Yeah. Was really good. Pretty much. Yeah, I was really good. I was really proud of myself. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everybody in this room is the whole reason the power profile exists. Like, no, yep. you can't fake it on that end and you can't fake it on that end. Oh, exactly. <laughs> like Neil ruining our lives for over 25 years. <laughs> so, Rob, I'm going to say I completely agree with your answer. Here's, oh, my God. Here, here's why as I'm you should. asking it, though, because this is what's bugging me. I, before this, calculated using proper methods what this athlete's FTP was. Meaning a calculator. Was. He used a calculator. Proper. And his 60-minute normalized power off of this sprint workout was the same. Oh, was well. three watts off. Yeah, but I, I, I do think, I think that's luck. <laughs> really, yeah, yeah, you know, just, I'm really sorry. Pure dumb happenstance. That's, <laughs> that's what bugged me about it. I'm like, is this luck or is this actually that good a metric? No, I don't think it is in that situation because the sprint stuff can be so all over the place. The recovery can be so all over the place. What are you doing in between? All that stuff. I do think this is one of those really neat places where if you do correlate heart rate to it, you're going to get some information that's interesting, right? You know, we talk about this a lot with crits. Like you can do an hour-long crit and your heart rate just will sit up there and that very much in that thresholdy place. And then you get a number that correlates really well with that thresholdy heart rate. I think that might give you a little bit of good information. But then there's the alternative of it, which is you can do a cross race and your heart rate's above threshold the whole damn time. And your normalized is like, you know, 12. It's nothing. Um, I love cross races. <laughs> Incredibly low average power, highest heart rates I see all year. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and it's and I mean, and it's a problem with the recording of the data because like you have this TSS that's off the chart low. It doesn't pertain to anything. So I don't think that that specific case is really going to give us that much information. I think it's happenstance, as we said, but it is kind of cool to see that. I do think it's neat to see that that. There is this idea of normalized power that is a very powerful metric that is well, kind of underused, I think, in a lot of ways for people because it really does reflect the on-off nature of racing. Yeah, and I think that like training peaks, right? I mean, they're really the people behind normalized power recognize that there are NP normalized power buster type of sure. workouts and efforts that are just too short in the formula isn't necessarily appropriate for them. So anytime that normalized power is used, I do believe that we're really looking at a relatively constant, although variable, but a constant effort that's not necessarily all out recovery, all out recovery. Right, right, right. right. But the beauty of that is in a lot of ways, that's bike racing, right? It, it is. is. It, it's the heart rate stays up there a little bit and it's on a little bit lower on, a little bit lower. I will never forget having Max Chance in the studio one time and 
having him on erg mode on a compu trainer yeah. and having him just whine incessant. Why can't I stop pedaling? I just want to stop pedaling. <laughs> and it was such a cyclocross athlete, you know, yes. to a tease, like knocked out this gigantic number for a minute and then couldn't hold a hundred Watts. Cause he just They're wanted to stop pedaling. Right. You know, I will say this is a reason that I'm not a huge FTP person. I'm more of a critical power and W prime type of person. And it's really only because I think that there's a little bit more of a robustness in the data that you're using to come up with these numbers. Now, there are some issues that come with that as well. You can truly knock one particular thing out of the park and maybe that skews your numbers. But I also think that that highlights one of my biggest issues with FTP testing is that they're only very discreet looks in time because you can only do that so often yeah. in terms of the full FTP test. Yeah. I hate FTP. I don't test my athletes for FTP because I, I feel like it's the equivalent of sending a kid to do his math test at school. Look, I agree. And like I said, we've done episodes. On sure, this. sure, sure, sure. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Amatra is a powerful tool used to focus your mind on a particular goal and create calm during challenging situations. Our mantra? Transformation begins where comfort ends. This mantra isn't meant to be intimidating. On the contrary, it should be invigorating. For many people, everyday life is filled with convenience, monotony, and a lack of time spent in nature. Alter Exploration facilitates the exact opposite. Challenging, invigorating, life-altering experiences in the natural world. Alter's journeys aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of you and the destination. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Life. Altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Okay, well, we got one question left, and this one's coming from Grant. Grant, what's your question for today? All right, here's my question. Coming out of Worlds in Scotland, there's a lot of criticism over that course. I saw people calling it the World Crit Championships, uh, World Cremes Championships, but it got me thinking. Every year we go into national championships in the States, and there's criticism about the course. Every year we go into Worlds, there's criticism about the course. and This year, and most years, the very, very best rise to the top, right? You get the best racer that wins the race. So I guess my question is this, what makes a great championship course? Well... I don't know. I think the first thing that we need to tackle here is is just people complaining, right? Like like you said, Grant, you alluded to this in the question, and, and I feel like this is the answer that you're going for. I think people just like to complain. Let's be honest. They complain ahead of time to protect them against what might happen. They complain afterwards to protect them against what did happen. And there's no way you're designing a course. There's no way anybody's designing a course, right? That is going to satisfy everyone out there. 
the writers, the naysayers, the media, the casual people who have no clue what they're talking about. They all want different things out of the course. And we see this in cyclocross all the time, right? Where a lot of these riders' dads are actually the ones that, you know, because <laughs> cyclocross is a family sport, let's be mm. honest. The dads are the mechanics for these people. They're also the course designers, right? Vanderpool's dad, Audrey, designed cyclocross courses. He's designed world's courses. Vanderpool hasn't won on all the courses that his dad has designed. Let's be honest about that. So I, I'm just going to go out there and say, forget the course. Let's complain about the people that are complaining. I think that's fair, right? I think that's legit. I think my point with this whole thing is, so what? Isn't the point to have different skill sets be served with different courses? I mean, look at it when Cavendish won. It was obviously a sprinter's course, right? And then there's been years that it's obviously been a climber's course, isn't that kind of the whole point? I mean, we're in an age now where where athletes won't even go to Worlds if it doesn't suit them, right? People are like, oh, Vingago didn't go to Worlds. Well, of course he didn't go to Worlds. This is not going to be a good course for him. Why would he go? Why would he risk hurting himself? Yeah, well, I think that every every Worlds course, if we're going to suit everybody equally, needs to have an, an above-category climb that's above tree line. <laughs> uh, it needs to have uh, some tight technical descents. It needs to have a sprint finish. And then everybody has an equal shot. But ah, come on, that's not going to happen. And that's not even good racing. I think that, Grant, what you're saying ultimately is, is the answer to this. I think each year the course ought to be different. And I think that it's okay that some people aren't going to excel on that year's world's course. That's totally fine, right? We have seasons of racing. And throughout that season, there are multiple courses, different types, different skill sets, different people are going to be able to be successful. And, and the hard part about Worlds is that it happens once a year. But if we look at it in the longer term, over the course of 10 years, if you have one rider winning consistently, it's either because they're the best darn rider out there or because there's been exactly one type of course and they're the rider that's going to be successful on it. So variety, it's the spice of life. That's what I was going to bring up is you know, the supposed ideal Worlds course has enough climbing that the climbers can do something but not so much climbing that the uh, sprinters can't get over and potentially win the race. But A, it's very hard to find that perfect mix of the two so that it appeals to everybody. And when you do find that, it just tends to be a breakaway rider's course. And if you have that sort of course, the quote, perfect world's course, you're going to see exactly what you're talking about, Rob, which is there's going to be a few people who are always going to win because it suits them. So I, I agree with you guys. You know, the world's course just needs to change every year. Some years it needs to be a sprinter's course. Some years it needs to have some crazy climbs in it and, and appeal to a different type of rider. You know, one thing I will throw out there that I thought the Rio Olympic course was one of those courses that kind of Trevor's talking about, right? That had that climb at the finish that was enough for the climbers to get away. And then there was, what, four or five K after a crazy descent where things could kind of come back together. Those courses make for unbelievably exciting racing and it's a lot of fun but it is kind of the same every single time now one place i would like to take this is one thing that i would love to see is no matter what is the championship course i mean i don't care if it's a national championship or a world championship you're having host cities bid they get it and then have the course reflect where you are in the world right you know, like if spain gets the world championships, put it in the mountains. That'd be fun, right? And if Ireland or Scotland gets the world championships, it's rolling hills and it's like constant 
weather and all of those things. I really think that it's cool when the course reflects the area in which the race is being hosted. It gets them the chance to show off, you know, and it comes right back to what we've been saying, right? So, okay, that may not suit this part of the Peloton. Oh, well, that's okay. I mean, we go to Grand Tours and there's like sprinter stages and there's climber stages and there's roller stages. And that's what makes these Grand Tours awesome. Even the Vuelta, which is kind of crazy. You know, the Vuelta's like all over the map, but it's fun to watch because it's all over the map. Yeah, sure. You know, one thing that I will bring up here as we're on the topic of just championship courses and common denominators, one thing that I'd really like to see is these countries, host countries, host cities, they know long enough ahead of time uh, that they're going to be hosting the biggest, the biggest event on the calendar that year. I would love to see more emphasis placed on safety and course conditions. And that was a big conversation about uh, the, the course this year for Worlds was how poor the road surface was. And in my opinion, stuff like that should never happen. If you have to resurface that route, resurface that route. If you're going to bid, if you want this in your city or in your country, you really have to be able to make it a world championship caliber event. And I think that that is really important because somebody breaks their bike, somebody breaks their wheel, somebody gets a flat tire because of a stupid pothole. Nobody wants to lose a bike race that way. That's not a fair way for somebody to have their day made or broken, in my opinion. Particularly when you consider the fact that the the world championship course, I don't think I've ever seen one that was a point-to-point. It's usually a circuit, so it's not such a big course that they couldn't go and, and repave the whole thing. Not to mention how much money they spend to host those things, right? I mean, this is this is one of the big issues right now for UCI. I mean, it was a big issue in, in swimming with FINA, World Cups, World Championships. Those things go to a place that can pay the money to host the event. So they're chunking out a big amount of money already to host the event. Pave the road. It's not going to cost you that much more. It's not going to put you in a bad spot. And almost, as Trevor alludes to, I mean, almost every one of these things finishes on a circuit. So let's get that circuit at least laid down and paved out. And, you know, if it's not great leading into the circuit, well, that's not the end of the world. Things don't really break up or do that going into it as much. And there's a breakaway and everybody kind of sits in. It's with circuits where things really get nutsy. Now, I I do want to take this back a little bit to what Rob said. And... I'm not going to be a, it's not a public service announcement, but it is almost a request here to the masters riders that are listening. Who cares? Ride the course that shows that you got to come to. I mean, it's a, it's a running joke in cross that every year somebody does a YouTube point of view lap of the cross course, posts it. And then we get three weeks of people complaining about how there's no elevation or the course is going to be boring or all this stuff. And then we show up and it snows a foot and the course is an absolute epic thing. Just wait a minute. Just see what's coming. Just see what it actually looks like. You never can tell elevation on YouTube. Like, just let it let it go for a minute and, and then show up and race where it is. And that's the mental strength guy in me. You can't control the course. You can control your response to the course. Exactly. And I think you heard that a lot from the athletes going into Worlds. I mean, some of them did flat out said, you know, we don't love it, but this is the course. So this is what we got to get ready for. The other thing that I want to bring up, I can't remember who was the organizer at the time, but I always felt 
Some of the most boring years of the Tour de France was when the organizer tried to get into setting the strategy of the race, meaning he, he wanted it to be decided in some epic final day of the race, and he didn't know who was going to win until then, and designed the course around that. And it just made for a really boring Tour de France. And my response to that was always, that's not your job as the organizer. Your job as the organizer is just to make an interesting route and let the, the racers figure out how they want to race it. And I'm going to say the same thing with worlds. To me, it's, it's really simple. You, you want a good world's course, just have a course that's got some interest in it. And then it's up to the racers to decide how they want to race it. Yeah, and it, it's it's really hard to complain about this year's course. I mean, I said it in when I was introing the question. The best rider won. That's in your opinion. Uh, well, okay. The best five riders were at the front. I mean, it, the point is that, like, the cream rose to the top. And nine times out of ten, it's going to. You can get me going on, on course design for cross all you want in the States. And, and I have very, very distinct opinions. But... It's still the course in front of you. There's nothing you can do about it. We rolled into nationals that didn't love the course, but you still got to race it. No, I think, Grant, you're entirely true. And, and controlling the things that you're able to control, right? Uh, understand the course. Know what the course is. Know what the surface conditions are like if we're talking cyclocross. Know what the road conditions are like if we're talking roads, so on and so forth. All of that helps your preparation, Right. And so this information, it might not play to your strengths, but it can play to your training and that can get you stronger at these uh, skills or power profile, whatever it is that you need to be as successful as you can possibly be. And then take that one step further, looking at that course and say, OK, how do I get my strengths to play for me on this course? My strengths on this course may mean I have to go in the first 10 minutes of the race. Yeah. Or I got to hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then try to attack when everybody's tired. Like that's the biggest piece is that that's what these guys are doing on a daily basis. When they go and show up for these races, either they adjust their training to the course because they know what's coming with Roubaix or Flanders or something along those lines. And their training really is, highlights that, but you see it all the time in the, in the grand tours, they're talking about a grand tour with one TT. People don't think about their time trial at all. They focus on their climbing or there's three and they're in the wind tunnel 15 times before the race starts. And we don't, as racers, necessarily have those resources, but we can really tailor what we're doing toward a type of course and a type of training in order to be good. And, and this is something that I'll bring up a lot in the States with a lot of my riders is we don't have epic one-hour climbs, but yet a lot of our training is geared towards these epic, long, kind of, in my feeling, climbing-based training. Like it's power to weight. How can I get my FTP up as high as I can do? All that stuff. How often do we race something like that? Maybe we do here in Colorado, but I'll tell you, in upstate New York, we never raced anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's all rolling hills. Yep. So I think that stuff's really important. And, and it's a great point, Rob, really tailoring your training toward the race that you're looking at. Well, guys, why don't we finish it up there? Grant, you're going to have to explain to me how when we got to your question, you somehow made it sound like you weren't in the room anymore. I'm quite impressed by that. <laughs> I will say this. Grant brought up a question that wasn't appropriate. It didn't work. So we had, we, we had to re-record a question and I left the room. Yeah, so Grant got sent to the corner. I asked my question from time out. So I'd love to say goodbye to all of you in person, but I'll do it virtually. All right, guys. 
That was another episode of Fast Talk. This episode is totally on Trevor's shoulders. Grant and I are not responsible for any of this, and your complaints should be delivered to Trevor at FastTalkLabs.com. Deep sigh. All right, finish it up, Rob. No, there's no finishing. It's done. For Trevor Connor and Grant Holicky, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.